0: We continue today looking at Jesus' letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, focusing on the dangers that they faced. Now, I don't know about you, but you know, to me, dangers are not an enjoyable topic. But in this case, they are a necessary one because we face the same dangers today. Last week, we saw that the danger was the fear of suffering, and the situation that the Christians faced in the city of Smyrna was persecution. Jesus said, "There's." imprisonment coming, possibly death. We saw from Scripture that suffering is a part of this life that we cannot avoid, that God's plan for us includes suffering of different kinds, and that God has multiple purposes for that suffering, including changing us, making us more like Jesus. We also have this promise, that God won't allow us to be tempted beyond what we can in any situation as we look to him look to god for his perspective for his strength and his wisdom today's danger is compromise that's the danger in the letter for today and the danger is from a direction that should not surprise us but often does and that's our own desires so remain seated but let's read together from the screen our scripture today revelation 2 verses 12 to 17 But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, if not... Let's start with just a little background on the city of Pergamum. It was the first city in its area to have a temple dedicated to the Roman emperor. It was dedicated in 29 B.C. to Caesar Augustus. So there are decades of, it, of this uh, temple being there in the city before this letter is written. The city was the, the, the capital city for the Roman province of Asia, which meant that the seat of government was there. The Roman proconsul was there, and the Roman proconsul had the power of the sword to enforce Roman law. In the letter, Jesus starts by talking, as he does in the other ones, about himself. His words are very brief in this case. He says that he has the sharp two-edged sword. Reading through the book of Revelation, that's going to remind you because that's what we see in Revelation chapter 1. Where, Jesus, uh, where you see a description of Jesus in Revelation 1, starting in verse 13. In the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand, he held seven stars. Here it is. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Now, this sword is not literal. What we're seeing here is a description that is poetic. It is a poetic way to describe the power of Jesus and the purity of Jesus. And I believe when it talks about him having a sword, it's referring to Jesus' authority to rule and to judge the universe. Because Jesus, as God the Son, is the creator. And so he's He's judging and ruling over what he made. Jesus' standard for judgment is his word, the Bible, which in the New Testament we are told God breathed or spoke to us. There's one other place where we see a reference to this phrase about the sword, and it was what uh, Bruce read earlier, Romans 4, verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, remember that God as our creator deserves our first allegiance, our ultimate allegiance. And what we see in these verses is that God is all-knowing. He knows our hearts. His word divides and, and discerns. Nothing is hidden from God. And he also tells us that we're going to be judged by God. We're going to be held accountable. Well, since our hearts are selfish and rebellious, we all deserve God's judgment Our only hope is God's offer of forgiveness and mercy through Jesus. So that one short little phrase, Jesus says, I've got the two-edged sword. You can see how that actually points to quite a lot. Then Jesus talks about the situation that the Christians are in. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Well, this reference to Satan's throne is cryptic. That means it's not easy to understand. Some Bible scholars believe that it possibly refers to the mix of religions that, were, uh, that they had in the city of Pergamum. They know that, that they worshiped Zeus, Athena, Dionysius, and Asclepius. Now, just curious, for those of you that are here, how many of you have ever read about any of the Greek gods? Okay, quite a few. All right. Well, there's Zeus. He's the big guy okay athena dionysius he's the guy he's the god of wine and all the stuff related to wine asclepius you might not have heard of but you've seen his symbol it's the snake asclepius was the god supposedly of healing but in pergamum two of the gods had an extra name given to them zeus soter asclepius soter and i'm saying that with a horrible american accent in the greek it's the word for savior Zeus is your savior, Asclepius is your savior. And what you see as you look at religions is that pretty much every religion except Christianity offers you some alternative to the one true God. So this is the background. This is part of what's going on in the city of Pergamum, this worship. And we're going to see that there's some other things that go along with this worship in a minute. So that's one possibility that this Satan's throne is talking about this mix of religions. But a number of Bible scholars believe that this actually refers to emperor worship. By the time this letter is written, that that temple to the emperor has been there for decades, multiple decades. And you've got the Roman proconsul there. And we know from church history, from, actually from history, that at times emperor worship in the Roman Empire in some areas was required. It was not required everywhere all the time, but in some places, depending on who was ruling, they required emperor worship, and the penalty if you refused was death. I talked about last week a man, a pastor named Polycarp, who died because he refused to worship the emperor in one hundred fifty five AD. So combine this emperor worship with this general situation for Christians in that day, and then I mentioned this from the first letter. And that is that Christianity was different from all the other religions because Christianity said you can only worship one God. It's not one among many. It's just one. And something different from today that they had back then is that religion was, for a lot of people, a daily part of life. Put all that together, and that creates tremendous social pressure on the Christians in all of these cities to conform and to compromise. So Jesus says, I, I know what's going on with you. And then he gives his assessment. I know the good that you're doing. He says, you hold fast to my name. You're, you're obeying me. You are remaining faithful in the middle of all this pressure to conform. You are remaining faithful. And then he says a second thing. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. And he says again, where Satan dwells. Now. You look at the context, and it's pretty clear that Antipas' death was almost certainly related to his Christian faith. And Jesus makes a point of repeating, I know your circumstance, where Satan dwells. And so you look at that, and it's a bit like Ephesus. There's a lot of good going on here. Okay, Many of the Christians in Pergamum were obedient to God in many ways, and we ought to want to be like them. But even though Jesus mentions the good, he also says, I have this against you. And he lists two things. He says, you have some people in your church who hold to the teaching of Balaam. I'm going to explain about Balaam in a second, but notice what it says. They hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Now, if you want to learn about Balaam, you start in Numbers chapter 22. And here's the situation. The nation of Israel is still in their 40 years wandering. God hasn't brought them and given them the land of Canaan yet. They're on the east side of the Jordan, for those of you that like to place yourself geographically. And they're right next to the nation of Moab. And we're told that the king of Moab, whose name was Balak, was afraid. And he wanted to to level the deck a little bit. And so he found a prophet named Balaam, and he wanted to hire Balaam to curse the nation of Israel. Now, you read about the the account. Now, if you don't know, Balaam is the guy who's on the donkey, and the donkey turns around and talks to him. First time Balak sends his his, uh, messengers, Balaam Balaam says no. The second time he says yes. But as Balak has Balaam try three times, to curse the nation of Israel, Balaam quote-unquote fails because every time God uses Balaam to bless the people, to pronounce good on them. And Balak is fit to be tied. Okay, well, here's the other thing that you find out. Balaam wants Balak's gold. He really, really wants it. And he knows that he can't. Curse the people if God won't let him, and God isn't letting him. So he found a way to get around the problem. He figured out a way to get the people of Israel to compromise themselves and get God to punish them. And what he figured out was they could be enticed to worship Baal. And that worship included food offered to Baal and immorality. Okay? The other thing we know from history, so that's Balaam, and that's the teaching of Balaam, that you're worshiping other gods and you're pleasing yourself. We know from history that the worship of the gods, like they had in Pergamum with Zeus and Dionysius and all that other stuff, included eating food offered to idols and immorality. So you can see the parallel of what's going on between the two. So what this teaching is saying, oh, yes, we worship Jesus, but it's also okay to worship these other gods. It's also okay to indulge yourself. So that's one thing he has against them. Secondly, he says, you have some people in the church who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. I wish we knew more about them, but we don't. We know very little about them, but it seems like they were running a parallel course to these other people that were in the teaching of Balaam, seems to be oriented to pleasing your senses, indulging yourself. And he says to the church there in Pergamum, you're obeying God in some ways, maybe even in many ways, but here's where you missed. You're allowing these people from these two groups to stay in your church, unchallenged even though their teaching and their actions are clearly contrary to God's word. Now, again, we wish we know why it was that those who were obeying God were letting these other two groups stay there, we're not told. But we know this from the Bible. Our biggest blindness to sin and problems is with ourselves. But we also can be blind to other people's sins and to their failures at times. Jesus, remedy, repent. Isn't that a good Bible word? Okay, preachers like to say it. Repent. Okay, get that pop on the p. That word means to turn, to change direction. And Jesus is saying, actually, to both groups. You've got this church group. So, member of the church is people. You've got a a chunk of the people that love God and are obeying him, trying to follow him. And then you've got some that are worshiping God, but they've added some stuff in their lives. This wrong stuff. And so in a sense, Jesus is speaking to both groups, saying, repent, change. You're headed in the wrong direction. You need to turn around. You need to come back to God and to full faithfulness to God in every area of life that God shows you. Now, just remember this when when you talk about full obedience while we're on this earth you and i will never be completely free of our sinful selfish nature so it won't be perfect 100% but this is what god calls us to and this is what Je- this is what jesus fills in you talk about filling in the gaps he takes care of those things for us well as we saw a couple of weeks ago it isn't just them that need to repent we all need to repent every day because we fail we disobey god And all of us are tempted every day in multiple ways. And any time you and I say yes to the temptation, what are we doing? We are turning away from God and chasing after our own desires. And so part of what we're called to do is not only to turn direction, but to renew our minds, to change our thinking, to remember God's truth. Because often it isn't that we don't know what is right and wrong. We've just decided to forget and to focus on something else. So we're called to remember. So Jesus says, I know where you live. I see the good you're doing, but I have these two things against you, and I'm calling you to repent. And if you don't, if you won't repent, if you will not change, if you refuse to change, then Jesus is going to come and war against those people that are following Balaam, the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans with the sword of his mouth. Now, think about it for a second. Who wants... God warring against you, okay? If, if, he, if you've got war, God warring against you, there's no question who's going to lose. It's not going to be God. You're going to lose. And there's, it's so easy for us to look at other people and say, oh, look how they're disobeying God, actively fighting against God and what God says. I am so glad I'm not that person. Okay, the difference between them and you and me when we say that, it's a difference only of degree, not of kind. Because whenever you and I say, you know what? You just ticked me off. I am not going to forgive you. Okay? I've just disobeyed God. I've just started my own little war against God in this area of my life. I'm just like anybody else who says, you know, my whole life I'm going to give to doing what I want. It's a difference of degree, not kind. So the third danger that we're looking at is compromise. And what we see is that you and I can compromise in multiple areas of our lives, even while we are trying to obey God in other areas. Let me say that again. This is where the teacher stomps their foot and says, this is on the test. We see from this, and you should see it also from experience in your own life, that you and I can compromise in multiple areas of our lives even while we are trying to obey God in others. Now remember this, any area of compromise affects all the other areas of your life. You and I cannot, as hard as we try, compartmentalize sin. We can't do it. It just won't stay contained. It's going to seep out and it's going to ooze and it's going to touch every other area of life. Well, Jesus says this. He says, to those who do repent, to those who conquer, this is what he grants, two things. He's going to give some of the hidden manna. There's differing opinions about what this means. We heard a little bit from what Bruce was reading. Could refer to spiritual food for spiritual life. Manna in the Old Testament with the people of the nation of Israel was physical food for them. They ate it for 40 years. This hidden manna could be spiritual food. Some scholars think it refers to the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. And you read about that in the book of Revelation a little bit later on. And what you see is that Jesus calls himself the bridegroom, And he calls his church, in this case, universal church. Every person that that he died for is his, his bride. And unlike what we do today, when we have a wedding today, okay, you might have a sit-down meal, you get the one meal. Back in that day, when you had a wedding, wedding, it was a week-long celebration. And there was a feast. And that's what Jesus is talking about. We don't know if it's going to be a literal feast in heaven or not, but even if it isn't, what it's talking about is there's going to be joy. And there's not. There's going to be some things missing. There won't be any sorrow, any death, any pain, and there won't be any temptation. So that's part of what God promises us. The second thing that he says that he would grant to those who conquer, I will give him a white stone. With a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now again, it's kind of cryptic. The white stone. There's some differing opinions, but we do know this from history. In that day, when people competed in athletics, and I know there's some some teens in here that are compete have competed. Okay, you didn't get a little statue. You 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 and I would get and go, huh? They gave you a little white stone. What am I supposed to do with that? The little white stone is what let you into the celebration banquet after all the sports were done. The little white stone got you into the celebration banquet. You can see the connection here. The new name could refer to a new identity. And this we know because we're told in Scripture. Even though every Christian, while we're still on this earth, still has a sinful, selfish nature, every Christian is also given a new identity in Christ. You know what? We don't think about that enough. And we've been given a new identity along with the Spirit and many other things I'll talk about in just a minute. So here's a question for you and I, As if you are a Christian, are we living as if we have that new identity every day in all the relationships that we have? For most of us, if we're honest, it probably not is in, not in the front of our mind but it has to do with the fact that we have a whole different way of relating to people, a whole different basis for relating to people that on the one hand puts us level with everybody else but also has us so secure because God has said and promised we are loved by Him, not because we deserved it, not because we earned it, because He decided He wanted to love us. So that's the letter. Jesus talks about himself, talks about the situation. He talks about the good. He says, but I have these two things against you. He says, if you don't repent, this is what's going to happen. But for those who do listen and follow me, then here's the good that I'm going to give. Let's come back to this danger of compromise. And I want to focus on one particular aspect. And that is compromise and our desires. I believe as you look in this letter that the references to Balaam, which again was all about the teaching, was about indulging yourself and the Nicolaitans, that that's representative of all the temptations that we face. Because it really is about the temptations are for me to do what I want to do, for me to get the things that please me. But here's what often happens when we talk about temptations. We point to circumstances around us and other people outside of us we say things like, he made me angry, but well, we're saying it's his fault that I got angry, so we're blame-shifting. No, what the truth is the circumstances and the people are the occasion. They're the situation for the temptation and for our sin. Let's look at what we read in James chapter 1, starting at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. So there, right there, he's taking blame shifting off the table. Okay, It's not an option. He goes on to say, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Sometimes people get confused the difference between a temptation and a test when Christians talk about that. A temptation is from Satan where he is trying to encourage us to disobey God, turn away from God, rebel against God. A test is where God is giving us an opportunity to exercise our spiritual muscles, to trust Him, to obey Him, and to walk through the situation with God depending on God. So God cannot be tempted with evil. He doesn't tempt anyone. And then in verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. Say these four words with me by his own desire. We are tempted and lured and enticed by our own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So our temptations come from our own sinful, selfish nature and its desires. Now some people have thought, oh, I can see how desires get people in trouble. So I'm just going to try to get rid of all desires. It ain't going to happen. And desires aren't the problem in and of themselves. You see, we were made by God to worship God and to desire God. Desires are good. But what has happened is every one of us has been born in sin. Every one of us has chosen to sin, to turn away from God. And when we do, that distorts Everything in us, including our desires, and somehow we, when, when, when that happens, our view of life kind of shrinks. God, if we even think of Him, becomes the heavenly butler that we just ring the bell and we say, "This is what I want." But often we don't even think about God. We've just we've reduced the life to our senses. What can we see and hear and taste and touch and smell? That's going to please me. So, you can see that's a problem, and you and I can't fix it, which means we need to be rescued. But we don't need to be rescued primarily from our circumstances, even though that's often what we ask for. God, would you give me a new boss? Uh, Could could you just change all the people in my church? They are just so messed up. Could, Could you work on my family? Life would be so much better if you just gave me a better family. No, we don't need rescue from all of those things. I need to be rescued from me, and you need to be rescued from you. That's what we need. And the answer isn't to just say no to temptation, because we don't (laughs) just say no. Too often, we don't. Instead, we need to say yes to something and to someone else. Now, a few hundred years ago, a Puritan pastor wrote a paper, and the title was The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Actually, that was not the whole title. Back then, their titles were a paragraph long. Uh, that's how they wrote. So it's much longer. But basically, here's what he wrote. You can't just say no to a problem, to a desire. Okay? He said no, you actually have to replace that desire with another one. You have to replace that desire with a better and a stronger desire because you and I can't turn off our desires. We can't. God didn't make us that way. And so as a Christian, our hope for responding well to temptation isn't our own abilities. It's Jesus and all that Jesus provides. So if you are a Christian, God has put his spirit in you. God offers his wisdom to you. God offers his perspective on life, which is different from ours when we're not thinking according to God's ways. God guards us, even though he allows the difficulties to come. God answers prayer again and again and again. God has given us many, many promises. But here's the connection. God's spirit gives Christians new desires. How do we get them? We don't just grit our teeth and grunt to try to get a new desire. God's Spirit gives Christians new desires so that we can say yes to God and say no to the temptation. And we get the Spirit and access to God and God's love and everything else. We get it through Jesus. And we're also told that Jesus was tempted in every way that we have been, every way that you and I have been. But he didn't sin. So one of the things that tells us is that he knows what we're going through. But Jesus did more than just identify with us. No, we're told and we celebrate that Jesus willingly suffered and died in our place so that you and I could have eternal life. But our hope isn't that we just endure until we die and then we get something better. We actually get a new life that starts now, including the power to say yes to God and no to temptation. And we celebrate Jesus' gift today with communion. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the richness of your word. I thank you for the truth. You don't sugarcoat our situation. You don't sugarcoat our need for you. Thank you that you reveal yourself, not just as the creator and just, but the God who showed mercy, the God who chose to love us, knowing that we don't deserve your love and your goodness. Thank you for doing all of this for us because you love us and because you want us to live life with you every day. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we've talked a little bit about what Jesus has given us. Let me talk as we prepare for communion to talk just a minute More about what Jesus has done for us Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I never could yet we're obligated before God to live Jesus took our rebellion on himself and he died in our place and Jesus death satisfied fully satisfied God's justice so that God could adopt us and love us. Then, he's still not done yet, Jesus credits us with his perfect obedience. So that in a way that we cannot understand, when God looks at us, on the one hand, he sees the reality of our need and our brokenness. But when he talks about judging us and holding us to account, our account isn't in the negative. Our account isn't full of rebellion, it's full of obedience, because Jesus gave us his obedience, and so God smiles at us and loves us because of what Jesus has done, but Jesus still isn't done. He's given Christians his spirit and his promises, and he promises eternal life, and he tells us one day that life will be unfettered anymore with sinful, selfish nature. It'll be gone. Now, I don't know about you, but that is enough for a Presbyterian to say amen. When we talk about be exalted, O God, we sang that song. Next time you sing that song, think of this list of what Jesus has done for us, what Jesus has given us. And I think you'll sing with a different heart as we do that. If you're here today, And you've said publicly before others, I need to be rescued by Jesus. I need to be forgiven. I need his mercy. I don't deserve his mercy. We call that a profession of faith, your faith in Jesus. If you've made that profession of faith, and if you've been baptized, then you're welcome to the table. But I'm certain that there are some here today who are Christians. You've said, honestly, truly, I need to be rescued. And you have been rescued But right now, you have some desire, and I'm going to use this pencil as an example, and you have closed your fist around it. And you said, I will have this thing, whatever it is. Nothing else is going to satisfy. That's the funny thing. When you and I clench our fist around it, it never will satisfy. Maybe for a minute, but it'll fade. So this is a call today from Jesus to say, open your hand. Maybe Jesus will give what you desire. Maybe he won't. But you know he loves you. And if if your fist is clenched, you know you're not right with God. So he says, open it. If you're here today and God is a stranger to you, you, you don't know him. you you haven't come to the place where you've agreed with God, I need to be rescued, then don't take the bread and the juice. But think about the amazing offer that God gives us to be forgiven and for our relationship with God to be changed from enemy because we have all turned against Him to friend and child. Again, let's pray. Lord, thank You for reminding us of Your goodness. Thank You, for giving us this reminder because we so easily forget, we so easily get distracted. And what we're reminded of is the greatness of your love. Lord, help work in us that, that as we see your grace, it's amazing. As we see your love, it is amazing. And help us to delight in you as you delight in us. Pray this in Jesus' name.